BAFTA creates platforms for open debate, and so the views expressed in this programme are only those of the contributors. Tonight, remember one other thing, and this is probably the most important thing of all. Remember, I really don't know what I'm talking about. When someone stumbles upon my obituary, they will be struck by the fact that the same nitwit who wrote Minority Report also wrote Marley and Me. I'm Dave Green, and welcome to BAFTA's monthly podcast, highlighting just a few of October's BAFTA events and webcasts. This month, inspired by talks and the vices of Out of Sight, Downton Abbey and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, we fixed our laser-like attention on the art of screenwriting. What advice can experts give? Are there any hard and fast rules for writing scripts? And, in a question I haven't asked since the first year of university, roughly how many pages are they looking for? All these questions will be answered. Or will they? I know, that's not a good cliffhanger. I'm not a proper screenwriter. We've got people in for that. So, here to teach me the basics of structure, self-promotion and, here's hoping, dialogue are three dramatic archetypes of writers at different stages in their career. Providing an erudite introduction to all five of this year's screenwriter lectures was Jeremy Brock, who also has a day job as the writer of films including Mrs Brown, The Last King of Scotland and TV's Casualty. So, Jeremy, how do you go about selecting the screenwriters for for these series and uh, do you give them much of a brief as to what you want them to talk about? Uh, well, we do give them. We give them a letter which I wrote when the series was first conceived, which gives them a broad outline of what we want them to talk about. But it's very much their evening, and the key is it's their chance to express their art, talk about what moves them, talk about why they chose what they chose, and most of them address their work. And some, like Peter Strawn this year, address the things that really inspired them, the movies that moved them. We choose them in a kind of slightly ad hoc way, in the hope of balancing. European and American and we never let people go so if they turn us down we come back Hopefully that that variety will become apparent. On our panel next is uh, Jack Thorne who's uh, one of the writers of Skins and this is England 8688 for Channel 4 and with a couple of features currently in production can you tell us much about those at this stage? Uh, Yeah I've just come back from um, Mallorca where we were doing the last uh, week on this uh, Nick Hornby adaptation I've just done called uh, a long way down and that was um, nuts and brilliant I had an amazing time you're also a BAFTA Brit to watch what, what has that involved? Uh, it involved a very nice trip to LA to meet William and Kate at the start of their thing and it was very nice and uh, we had a lovely time and, and completing our, our panel today is Claire Wilson who's a screenwriter with three feature scripts in development as well as several TV projects she's also working in the BBC Writers Room on series two of Hunted with the X-Files Frank Spotnitz what, what is that like? Um, that's quite a ride it's pretty crazy Frank's got an interesting way of working. There's four of us working in the writer's room and Frank is the, the showrunner, which is, I don't know if it's a normal thing to do in England, so I think it's quite a sort of a move forward for British TV. It's just really fun. He's really out there. His ideas are really crazy. And, and go, I think it shows in the in the show. And, got, and, can, and can, you, can you give us a flavour of what, of what Hunted is about? It's a spy thriller with a female lead at the centre of it and it's very quite strongly serial based so you really have to follow the mystery of the, of the story like every episode is very action packed but you have to kind of watch each episode to keep following I, d- I should have worked out the thrill a bit from the title it's a hun- hunted it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's very evocative in that respect so uh, th- thank you very much for coming and as we've heard the lectures they're not intended as practical screenwriting seminars but they, mm-hmm. they often do contain uh, quite a lot of concrete advice 
let's get stuck in here with a clip of Scott Frank, who's the writer of Out of Sight, Minority Report, and Marley and Me. Always be reading something, especially something that inspires you as opposed to something you have to read or feel like you should read. If you prefer Dan Brown to Leo Tolstoy, knock yourself out. I think having fun leads to inspiration faster than doing homework, for me anyway, and I'm embarrassed to list all the books I haven't read or that I should have. It's, it's an extensive catalog. But I do love to read, and reading novels has always taught me more about writing than reading screenplays. And we spend too much time reading screenplays. And, and the book that taught me more about writing scripts than any other was, in fact, Red Harvest. Not only is it perfectly structured, it's a lesson in saying a lot with a little, which for me at least is the key to writing a good script. There's only so much real estate in a screenplay. How can you set the scene with the fewest words? How can you create a complicated structure without gaping plot holes? Red Harvest shows you how. Skip Robert McKee and instead spend a weekend retyping Red Harvest. You will learn all you ever need to know. And if you think I'm crazy, read, and if you can, retype <laughs> Red Harvest. It's not that long. And you will learn everything about saying a lot with a little. So this is really a question for everyone. Are there any general techniques that, that you find useful for making scripts better? And I, I'm, I'm going to say here that I've given everyone a printout of some storytelling tips that uh, I've got off the internet that are attributed to Pixar. So, but yeah, again, feel free to, to agree or disagree or, or chip in with your own perspective. Yeah, it's always hard. And uh, it's always you always uh, think that there's going to be a way of doing it at the start of every time you write a script you, you think that there's going to be a way of doing it and it's going to be quite easy and you've had these meetings with these film people where they, you've talked about your ideas quite a lot and you kind of leave those meetings going oh, I could do this in a weekend you know and then you sit down to write it and you disappear into a black hole and you never emerge from it for about three months and then at the end of the three months you go oh okay I understand what it is now and it's not what I thought and I hope it's reasonable but do you know what I mean like you know it's uh, that's the other thing you always think it's going to be an amazing piece of work totally, and, uh, yeah. and, always, uh, and you uh, and you finish it and it's kind of like yeah I did a I did a good job but it's not an amazing piece of work and that's always quite distressing and upsetting so no I don't really have any sort of sort of there's never been a template or a thing and I wish there had been and so in your experience Jack it's because you don't know what something's going to be until you've written it or until you've been through that experience yeah it's an, I mean it's an interesting thing because um, Ron Harwood who's one of my heroes I went and heard him speak and one of the things that I took away from that that I thought was kind of brilliant was that he always refuses to do treatments and all that kind of stuff. I'm sadly not in a luxurious enough position where I can refuse to do treatments. I'll do whatever they tell me to because I want the work. <laughs> but um, the reason why he doesn't do treatments is because he wants to be able to use his imagination to find his way through something. And that thing of not quite ever knowing what your thing is, I found that really inspirational and reassuring from you know quite a senior man who's been working in the industry a long time. To have written within three years... Uh, the pianist and the diving bell of the butterfly mm. I would retire do you know what I mean like no that would no, be it for me absolutely. you know let like you just kind of go those two things are such sublime scripts mm, that you just kind of go oh that's Ro it I'm done you Ro know I would also said never write an original screenplay I think he said my advice to screenwriters is never take your own idea and go into always do adaptation because he said I would never put myself through the tearing apart that you have of your own original idea he said mm. I, would, I would keep that that's interesting because he's just done Quartet which yeah. is uh, based on his play so right, uh, yeah. uh, that's uh, you know he's adapting but he's adapting yeah, his own yeah. work he would so. argue I think that he reserves the original work for theatre which theater, is his yeah, first love said, yeah, yeah. Uh, so well I mean hopefully we'll come back to our adaptation but Jeremy uh, a lot of the writers certainly gave the impression that often projects would turn out and, and, like they'd be inspired as they were working on them yes I think it's, a un it's an underrated feature of writing 
the not knowing, the importance of not knowing. We're told over and over again that structure is vital, that treatments are part of a liberating process. I tend to agree with Jack that in an ideal world, if you can let the story tell you what it's going to be, so much the better. One of the points here from Pixar is know your ending. I don't agree. I vehemently disagree with that. Why should you know your ending? How prescriptive is that? Yes, you might have a vague idea, as I think Peter Strawn talked about, having a movie vaguely in your head when you write it. Part of what a screenwriter's job is to do is to make that flesh on the page, and it's a difficult skill. But know the ending? I don't agree. Well, Scott Frank argued that like, if he didn't know the ending, he didn't know how to structure scenes that would potentially lead up to it, or yeah. the, the direction the film is going in. I just don't find that the most fulfilling way to approach the script. Obviously, if it's an adaptation of a book, it's different. You have the story there extant. But even then, the osmosis, the process of shifting from narrative novel writing to film writing is so huge. People really underestimate the shift. It's massive, I know. Jack's just done an adaptation. It's a big, big shift. And you might, you know, get a lot of great dialogue, but actually novels don't just fit into 120 pages. Claire, I mean, do you find it that it is potentially sometimes too easy to write too much? And if you're particularly writing for a feature, you only have a very limited amount of space to, to get across what you need to. To, what, to overwrite, you mean? Yeah. To, uh, yeah, that, I mean, that's... It depends. What, like, I'm just thinking about adaptation. I'm doing um, a modernisation of Oliver Twist for Ruby and Rocket and... That's and it's a musical, and that's um really? yeah, that's <laughs> and it's uh yeah like you say it doesn't fit the books don't squeeze in the same way that that you hope they will. You have to start wondering where the where you can use the license, and that's when things kind of shift around. And I think one of the most important things of development actually is is like you say giving it time, the breathing between. Like you think that you're going to go away and you've got one simple problem in a script, which is she needs to find out how she feels about her father and then you go off and think oh, just, okay that's a couple of scenes here and there and then suddenly the whole screenplay's changed and it's not a small change it's a big change and it's those kind of emotional ones that sometimes can take longer mm. and and again in terms of timing do you, do you is it also difficult to predict how long a script or a redraft will take yeah yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. yes. I mean, given, given those yeah. unknowns it's, it's a very strange figure we always talk about 120 pages actually yeah. why exactly but you know it's kind of a good rough guide um, most of the scripts I've written are under that actually in the end I had this with uh, doing a thing I'm only just starting doing stuff with America but yeah. our pages are slightly longer than theirs they aren't are. they, you they know, get like, freaked you know, out they get yeah. freaked out so ours is about 110 is it by mm. that template I don't know <laughs> it's about 114 and they get oh, very right. freeked wow. out if you, they get it. freaked out if you go over yeah just to speak to, to a point Claire was making I think the other thing people misunderstand about novels and films given that so many movies are adaptations is that novels have the luxury of interiority, which films mm. don't have. Yeah. Films are an external medium. They are the, the movement of film over vision. And the need for narrative traction is, is intense. Whether it's character-driven or plot-driven, you have to have that traction in film. You don't have the luxury of, of an authorial voice that can pause, go inside, and come back out again. And I think whatever the books are that you're adapting, you will always find that challenge exists in some form or other. By interiority, you, you mean... The, the interior the voice, the authorial it, yeah. voice, the, th the, the, the first person. And the, this is the, when, when Scott Frank is talking about adapting out of sight, mm. and he says that, it, like, so he takes the character, he, he explores the character that's played by George Clooney more, where, in fact, the lead character in Out of Sight is the Jennifer Lopez character, simply because he feels that character is doing more, you know. Yeah, that's it's more active. Yeah. 
it doesn't matter how brilliant the actor it can be Al Pacino but a close up is just a close up and they can only give you so much you know in the end the film has to describe in some cinematic version the interior narrative that that character is experiencing and that's the challenge for writers and you do find with, uh, with characters in novels as well like the lead character might not be the most active character which exactly. can sort of exactly. suddenly become a problem when you're you find George Clooney playing the lead it's, it's like he wasn't yeah, meant to be like it's got a, it's got a shift yeah mm-hmm. totally so I mean, even if you're not at these uh, events in person, you can often follow the main points and uh, put your own questions via the app after Twitter. And uh, that's what Claire Woodward has, uh, has done here. And she asks, what sort of things render a script unproducible? So uh, I, uh, like, have, have, have you gone, if, there's any, if, if there isn't any advice that you would do, is there, are, there, are there any things that you particularly avoid? Well, the classic was the army marches into town and revolution. I think that took four days to shoot and nearly crippled the company. So obviously you don't write huge, massive scenes that you know are unfilmable on the budget you've got. But one of the points I think Brian Helgeland made in the lectures is don't be inhibited. You know, if you start trying to preempt what someone might or might not make, you're ruined. And in fact, in this day and age, with the sorts of facilities available and the kind of technology we have, actually, I don't think you should spend too much time worrying about that because someone will find, a good director will find another way of doing it. As Joe Wright just did with um, Anna Karenina, you know that should have been unfilmable on the on the budget that they had for a film like that because those kind of films are harder to get money for nowadays. Completely and, agree. And, yeah. and and what he did was he set it all in the theatre and found a very brilliant solution to uh, a budget problem. And so you don't restrict yourself, Jack. You're not worrying about budget or. Yeah, I mean, I may be stupid. Do you know what I mean? Like, no, and I haven't had many films made, so maybe that's the reason why. But you know, like, you know, yeah, yeah, no, I don't know. I don't no. think. I don't. The, 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 one of the best war films ever made is a movie called Come and See. Ah, oh, it's amazing. Unbelievable war film. It's basically a boy going through no man's land, going through hell. But you know, I don't know what the budget was, but the point is it's not a huge movie. It's just the greatest, most disturbing war film you will ever watch. With the greatest scene involving cows. Mm. <laughs> Claire, have you, have you ever looked at, look, looked at one of your own scripts and thought, oh, like, uh, perhaps I do that a bit too much? Like, I mean, th- this, was, this was just, a, a, again, something I've got out of Scott Frank, where he said, he said never, never open a film with a, uh, with a set description. And he said they were always people's bedrooms for some reason. The camera would move around the bedroom and then an alarm clock would go off. He didn't seem to like that. And he, he quoted uh, Elmore Leonard saying, never, never begin with the weather. <laughs> and, uh, never begin with the weather yeah but you know that, that like a lot of good things begin with weather that's true my, yeah. first, my first ever produced screenplay uh, was set in someone's bedroom and started with a long I don't know looked about out the, looked out skin the window, so. series one episode four oh, there we are yeah, yeah, yeah. well yeah. that's shown no more no, I, I, don't, I don't know I think Scott's being a bit cheeky there I'm not sure that's a rule that you can really apply well, you can hear the rest of Scott Frank's advice, including a frankly terrifying monologue about what it's like trying to get paid for a script that needs more rewrites. And that's on the BAFTA website at BAFTA.org. Now we'll move on to uh, a second act, if you will. <laughs> this, Ooh, this very, is going to be in here. Uh, that, yeah, there'll be some more hilarious gags there. So, of course, one key to writing a strong script is to make it about something interesting in the first place. Almost all this year's screenwriters spoke about the importance of finding themes that excite you, but at the same time pointed out that many jobs now involve adapting existing stories rather than coming up with your own. Here's a clip from the lecture by Peter Strawn, writer of The Men Who Stare at Goats, The Debt and Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. 
So I've adapted film scripts from novels and novellas, true life stories, documentaries, um, other films, and plays. Of these, you would think that plays would be the easiest source material to adapt from. You know, obviously the piece has already been conceived as drama, the characters are created, the dialogue is already written. But if I can give you one piece of advice, if any of you are writers, it's this. Think very carefully before trying to adapt a stage play to the screen. They come as friends, but they are secretly assassins. <laughs> and I think it's because when something has existed in one art form, it's very strongly marked by that form, and it doesn't easily pass over into another form. You know, for example, you have to scrub all the barnacles of the novel from the whole of the story. But a novel sort of advertises its difference from a screenplay, and you're forced to reimagine it as a film from the very beginning. A play comes looking so much like a film script that you can drop your guard, and then you end up with a recorded play. And no matter how good the play was, I don't think that can make a satisfactory film. That's probably the only really useful thing I'll tell you tonight. Peter does actually say lots of useful stuff in that lecture. But uh, Jer- Jeremy, when, is, are the things that you prefer to adapt? And do you, do you try and start with a the theme, or is that something that emerges as we've discussed? I don't think I choose books based on whether they fit a paradigm that I have in my head. I think I choose something that moves me. So I did a did an adaptation of a book called What Was Lost a couple of years ago. It's a love story set in a shopping mall. It's not something I would naturally have thought was, was going to work. I just thought it was a beautiful novel, beautifully conceived. The challenge of writing that as a screenplay <coughs> proved really difficult because there's a ghost story and a present tense story and those are the sorts of challenges that film has to deal with I approach each project on its own merits and I think you discover themes and strands when you look back at what you've chosen like a stamp like a voice that you weren't really conscious of and I think that's the right way around so and Claire do you find the skills for an adaptation are, are different for the skills that, that you'd use for an original story as the guy was saying I think they start off different you start off you're trying to sort of see which scenes you'll keep and because you've got the clear story ahead of you and you're just, I mean, with what I'm doing, I'm modernising it, so it's quite exciting to say, OK, what would Fagin be, would he drive a car and all those kind of things that suddenly, you know, lifted a little bit. Mm-hmm. But then when it comes to the kind of, you know, a year and a half in, you're, you're just going back to the same old stuff you were, like what's my protagonist doing and it's the same sort of rules that apply to your own kind of original idea. Is it easy to, to practise the skills that you'd using an adaptation I mean w- would you ever write a kind of uh, a script on spec that was an adaptation of an existing property a Philip K. Dick story off, off the top of my head and then cast around and see if anyone if anyone already had the rights to it that would probably be quite <laughs> stupid but you know yeah you could give it a go you yeah. could try uh, no no I, w- I wouldn't go that far I would pitch the idea mm. but that's a hell of a commitment a script can take you a year and then once you're developing it with other people not chunk two years out of your life very easily yeah. I don't know what you will find yeah. but that, you know two years gone working on something and if you haven't got a home for it and some prospect of it being made you just crucify yourself because every time you write you write as if it's going to be the best thing you've ever written otherwise you can't invest in it mm. yeah you should I mean you know writing originals obviously on spec makes a lot of sense you know like you know because you can write a script on spec that you think is right for someone and then discover it's not right for them and then maybe try and find another home for it. You know, going back to what Jeremy was saying about about themes and, I mean, you know, things that play in. I was, in my other life, I'm a playwright and uh, I was taught on the Royal Court Young Writers Programme by a guy called Simon Stevens, a brilliant playwright called Simon Stevens. And he said, every writer's got a myth and um, you don't necessarily have to know what your myth is, Mm. but you should sort of be aware that a myth exists. 
and I quite like that. I've always quite mm. liked that sort of sense of the thing. And and I think every and again every job I've taken, you know, I've never quite been sure why I've taken it, and I've always regretted it about <laughs> six weeks in. But um, uh, um, there is always a reason why you have. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I mean, it always yeah. plays back into that thing of just something about yourself that you're looking. You know what I mean? Like you're you looking know, to yeah. explore, or examine. I really like that. Yeah, 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 I really like that. Yeah. It's a clever man. And Jack, and Jack, and would you be tempted to adapt your own plays, or do you, or do you, no, or do you, do you think that would be safer in someone else's hands? They'd be terrible films. That's the truth of it. You know what I mean? They'd be awful. They because you know plays aren't the same as as films. I actually find plays a lot harder to write than films because you kind of get a bit stuck in your own head even more easily than you can on films. I mean, films you can get stuck in your own head, but plays, you know, and you and then you're you're left with this sort of blank piece of paper and you sort of know where you. But it just kind of dissolves on you, and um, yeah, I've just had that happen to me actually, which is why it's so bitter in my head. But um, uh, uh, the, uh, because you don't have the same story demands, no, but you no. have you have attention demands which are totally different, and you can't cut away, and you can't do this, and you can't do that, and you know, and and, and just keeping you can feel when concentration and audience concentration is going to be lost and yet you can't do anything to stop it whereas in films I can I can always kind of find a sort of way to get to get myself out do you know what I mean you know to kind of get myself thinking new things and uh, no with plays uh, yeah they're really hard so yeah and, and also yeah terrible films you know like you know yeah it'd be awful my, any of my stuff <laughs> yeah. so uh, generally the state of affairs is that everyone who is doing adaptations has experience from doing original scripts or again I'm not a lawyer you could do an adaptation of something that's out of copyright you could do something yeah. like Fifty Shades yes. of Grey that's fan fiction and then you just change the, the names you could do all yeah. of those yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's if you're doing it in that sense then it is a spec I suppose it's kind of you yeah. treat it the same way like if it's a real passion project but it does seem a bit odd to pick a book off the shelf that's you need to option that's currently going yeah. without but Thomas Hardy or you know what I mean like you know you've always wanted to do I don't know whether Brian Hel- Hel- did a night's thing did that get did that get I think that was probably just I, I think it was a commission but I think the idea he first had was just his idea floating about in his head for a few years right yeah it, it's it's not literally an adaptation of Chaucer's The Knight's Tale that's no it's not literal no it isn't it isn't literal it's a very loose interpretation very any closing comments on adaptations? While we're still One on closing comment on adaptation is own it. The book is there, but it's only there as inspiration ultimately. And all the writers who've done adaptation on the lecture series tend to make this point. Own the book, put the book to one side, make it yours. But do, do you think we're in an era where people are expecting more and more faithful adaptations? And I'm, no, I'm not specifically mentioning The Lord of the Rings here. Yeah, I no, have, but that's... A- I don't think so. I think audiences want to be surprised, and I think they will punish you if you're too faithful and by being faithful you fail to make an exciting film you've got to be brave and if that means going with some aspects of the book fine but owning it means making you know making it yours and deciding for yourself what works on film like you know uh, uh, doing the Nick Hornby adaptation if you don't get Nick's voice then you're in trouble you know what I mean like, no, and there's certain he's things got such like a that. distinct voice yeah, yeah yeah and if you don't get that right do you know what I mean you're like, then the whole thing won't work and it's the same with series television actually mm. you know like you know that when you're working on a show and you think you know that you've got to uh, fulfill the same thing that every other script has fulfilled and you're, you you don't own it you kind of listen to the notes and you kind of get a bit lost on the notes then you always end up flat on your ass I did that with Shameless I wrote an episode of Shameless it wasn't particularly great and part of the reason it wasn't particularly great was because I kind of fell apart I didn't think about what I wanted to do you know and I always regret it I, I had exactly the same experience on Bridesaid which is a which is a which is a film that it has faults that hurt me now when I look at it. 
and, well, and now, and, and particularly sometimes you find this with, with genre things, you also, fans are so vocal on the internet, mm. if you dare to do something that is different to the way fans have imagined it, then there's a, you'll get a lot of feedback about that. Is, is that something that, that you worry about? I'm not that with Oliver Twist. Thought, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know, there are a lot of people that love Oliver Twist, and I think Modernise it, and yeah, exactly, yeah. But it's a great Jake, idea modernising it. Yeah. I, think I would say I think they'll love it. I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> it's a great idea. I'd say if you keep true to the intention of the of the story and the themes, and as long as you're not making the characters do anything that they wouldn't have done, then I think you're fine. I think if you know your characters, if you know what they will, what they've done in that novel, and what they could do, then you can carry on and move them. So you can change the story, but keep the intention of the story and, and have many happy discussions on the internet sorry Jack uh, Jane Austen uh, apparently is the one not to mess with because uh, really? those fans are rabid yeah, yeah, apparently you know they, they, they just they go after you hard but apparently one of the things they really like is Lost in Austen which was a telly show and that's very loose with, with yeah. it but they were like you know caught the spirit of Jane or someone someone in the Jane Austen association decided that that one was alright but yeah yeah. Bright Dead fans have a pretty phobic quality really? <laughs> They can, be, they can be harsh. Yeah. <laughs> can really, be harsh. really, really useful, specific advice. That's yeah. great. <laughs> Finally, for our third act, in which we face a final climactic hurdle, getting someone to read, produce, and hopefully pay for your finished script. Uh, in his lecture, Julian Fellows of Gosford Park, Young Victoria, Downton Abbey, etc., talked about how his break came when he gave an unsolicited script, The Eustace Diamonds, to the actor Bob Balaban, who, along with director Robert Altman, was looking for a writer for Gosford Park. And Balaban was summoned to lunch by Bob Altman, and he thought they were just going to talk about other writers. Anyway, he got there, and... Um, Bob Altman said to him, you know, I, I, I don't think this is going to work. I think we should call it a day and, and move on to something else. And Balaban, who was really, really keen to set this up because he was an actor. As you know, he played Phoebe's father in Friends and he was in all the Christopher Guest movies. Very good actor, actually. But he wanted to be a film producer and he thought, if I can't set up a picture when I've got Robert Altman happy to do it, you know, it's never going to begin. And he suddenly remembered that he had my script for the Eustace Diamonds in his briefcase under the table. So with no pre-planning at all, he said, now, wait a minute, Bob, uh, there is this writer, you won't have heard of him, but this may be his territory. And he got the script out. And from that, I got this telephone call. I was in the kitchen on January the 1st, and I picked, hello. He says, would you like to write a script for Robert Altman? I said, yes. And that was the beginning. So, obviously, not everyone can have uh, the same stroke of luck that uh, Julian Fellows had there. But uh, on Twitter, Gareth Hutchins has asked us, by the beard of Zeus, how do I get anyone to read my scripts and give me decent feedback? So have, have you had, like, uh, what, what, what are your tips? I mean, particularly if you're starting out, Claire. I first got people to read them by entering competitions and showcases because you'd send them to agents and agents would say, I've never heard of you, no. And actually, it was through BAFTA Rockcliffe Writing Forum. I showcased one of those, and then I got picked up by some producers, which was Element. So that was one way in. And so, now they read them, luckily. Yeah. <laughs> and th- and th- thanks for mentioning BAFTA, Claire. You, did, you, you didn't have to say that. Well, 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 well done for getting it in. Uh, Jack, Jack what, what's worked for you? So- I, I came through theatre, uh, the Bush Theatre, put on my... I think it was about the 22nd play I've written. <laughs> and uh, Brian Elsley, the creator of Skins, came and saw it. 
and hired me on the basis of that. At the same time, I was doing short films with people that I'd found on, and I don't know whether those sort of websites exist anymore, the list websites, you know, like Mandy and all those kind of places. But it was a dude that just said, I'm looking for scripts, and I sent him a script, and he made the short film, and the short film, uh, Supermarket Love Song, went to Sundance, and then a producer saw that short film, decided that I was an okay writer, and then hired me for her first script scheme that she was running at Celador, for which they paid five grand for a first draft. And they liked that first draft. And then that was the um, first film I got made, Scan Book for Boys. Yeah, I got lucky, basically. And the, these are sites like shooting people and things. Sorry, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I like think there's people. a theme to this, and I think it's, it, it's harsh, but it's worth saying. Peter Strawn made the point. Talent will eventually find its expression if it exists and you will be discovered because there are hungry, hungry producers out there. If you put your work in the way of people and there is something there, as Jack and Claire have said, it will be picked up by someone. So my only suggestion would be enter the competitions, enter the workshops, etc. And if the talent exists and if the persistence is there, it will be discovered. I, I really do believe that that will happen. But the, the ongoing theme that we've had in some of these previous podcasts is, is often you need other people's help to get noticed because yeah. as an individual screenwriter... But I think one of the things that we only whisper, and it's hard, but we, we, we do need to say this, is writing's difficult, you know? And talent resides separate to personality and push. You know, I hate the American axiom that, you know, if you dream for long enough, it'll happen. Bullshit. You know, you have to have the talent in the first place. And my experience of working with other writers and seeing them blossom is that actually there was talent there extant and that talent will find its expression eventually if the persistence and the drive exists which it has to if you're in this game the only thing i would say is that i think that there is a shortage of people reading scripts at the moment and uh the cuts the government cuts uh are hitting theaters hard and hitting theaters reading programs hard and hitting literary schemes hard and so I do I do pity writers coming through now mm. because I think the route that I took is now pretty much closed off but you, you wrote know, 22 plays or something yeah yeah, yeah, See, yeah that's yeah. the persistence I'm talking about as well yeah. and uh, there's a golfing saying that you know the, the harder you work the luckier you get so yeah. you know if you uh, and particularly if, if golf so yeah no, <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm not saying yes yes the golfers have much tangential tangential but effective. Um, I didn't I didn't have an actual I, I was well, looking for the actual source of the quote couldn't find it you know people said oh it's golf anyway but <laughs> but uh, but and do, do, so do you find it's useful to have a, a broad portfolio or at least like quite quite a lot of work uh, behind you rather than focusing on perhaps a single project that you think is the best thing you've ever done? I think if you've got one solid script, that's the one that's going to get you sort of noticed because I, I mean, I've had a few behind me that once they read the one that they were interested in, they didn't really want to read the other stuff that you had in your drawer for, for years because that's stuff that's obviously been turned down or not kind of had any notice. So you just need one strong spec, I, agree, I think, to get one. through one will do it and you know Jack's right it, it is hard but I do believe there are there are people out there you know there are there are I don't know how many independent producers there are in the country but a lot all of them are looking for work the reading schemes like the BBC used to have that don't exist in the same way but the independent producers are proliferating and they represent now where you go that's what you do you, you find the ones whose work you like who've made something and you send it to them 
and this is probably on a slightly different tack, but uh, Abby Morgan at the at the end of her lecture mentioned that she was reading a lot of scripts online, and I, I assume legally. But are the communities of people who are offering like advice are, are the script exchanges uh, like that you've come across? No, but I I checked that out because I was amazed. I downloaded the same script within uh, thirty seconds. So it was just that someone had uploaded it, or I guess, and because it was an award winner. Sometimes you get sent them. BAFTA have some, I think. You I don't can get know. a lot of them online. There's, yeah. there's yeah. a true scriptorama, all those kind of yeah. places. You yeah. can get, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. Google it. Well, yeah. I think yeah. it's really worth it because I think, again, one of the themes in the, in, the, in the lecture series has been they're odd things scripts, and it's worth reading really good scripts because they are strange. You have to get comfortable with the the format, that the, the the way that they are conceived as an expression of what the film will be. So reading scripts helps you to work those muscles and understand how the Brian Helgelands or the Abby Morgans do it. And it's always interesting in terms of the massive scope of the difference between them, That um, to go back to Ronald Howard, he doesn't write stage directions really. You know what I mean? Like There's mm. no scene directions in his stuff at all. The pianist is very, very spare. And then you read, uh, I don't know, screenplay of Seven, for instance, and it's just chunks of just description you know yeah. and, and rather brilliant description and you know yeah and Abby Morgan's descriptions are amazing yeah. and I think actually it's part of what makes film film is that you're describing action which is speaking for for you I think I know that you know there are exceptions like Ron Harwood and he is amazing by and large though I think stage directions are an art in themselves how yeah. you how yeah. you stage a scene for for the reader? William Goldman's amazing yeah. too. Mm. William yeah. Goldman, yeah. yeah. completely agree. Claire, Claire do you do you, had, yeah, you had you read a lot of scripts before you started writing them? That that seems. I'd read a few. Yeah, I mean, I remember reading um, the first script I wrote was um, Reservoir Dogs, and I remember reading that and just thinking it was a brilliantly written script. And then I started reading loads of other scripts, and that's kind of was the first the first introduction to to screenwriting that I had was um, Tarantino pretty good yeah yeah he's pretty good i agree with you about stage directions i, I think they they're part of the art i mean Definitely. i know there was a fashion for it in america especially spielberg's really anti-stage thin, directions in his really final. sort of you know but that's not hard for most writers i think most writers yeah. aren't ronald harwood and i think most writers yeah. need to learn the craft of really good mm. there's also quite a few there's also quite a few stage published screenplays i i, I mm. i'm a bit of a Nerd. And um, I um, collect, so you get books, you could get the collected. I, I collect them, yeah, 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 yeah. And actually, on Amazon, you can buy quite a lot of them for like one p. If you go onto the screenplay section of the Amazon site, there's quite a lot in the sale bucket that are, that are really good. You know, Coen Brothers and all that kind of stuff that are really yeah. worth reading. They're and, really useful, know, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And Jeremy. Brian Helgeland, yes, Brian Helgeland. Uh, was, like, was very interesting, and he said that, like, I mean, clearly because he's a director as well as a writer. Yes, he he painted an astonishing picture of like his desk was covered with like Google image searches. I of, loved like, what he said about imagery. Yeah, I, I and thought, he he was very much trying to create a, a, a picture that he the, wanted someone. The to other make. point that might be worth people knowing is that Brian's really hot on research. He he says if you're in any doubt about where you're going, go back to the research, read, go on the internet, find something to inspire you, and I do think. That, as a piece of advice, is really helpful. Yeah, mm. definitely. Mm. So this is going to be like a, a quick fire round uh, of other tweets. Awesome. Uh, uh, you can you can just Great. jump in. You don't have to answer all of them. Kay Decker, when you get a new idea, what's the first step you take when starting the script? Uh, researching it. 
There we go. That's all good. Good, 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 good. Good quick answer. That's, and Brian Helgeland would agree. Today. <laughs> so would you. Um, Greg Jenner, how do you know when a screenplay is finished and would benefit from no more rewrites? That's a really good question. Yeah. And I don't know that you ever do know the answer to that question. You know, I'm always honing in things either too early or too late. Mm-hmm. And uh, I never mm-hmm. kind of work out the thing. The thing you don't do and you should never do is hand in when you've finished the final page. And I do know a few writers that do that. Uh, that you should at least take I think Paul Abbott says you should at least take a week where you're not writing at all just breathe where you can just, you know, and, then, and then go back to it that's yeah. really really good advice definitely a week and then look back at it and you will see things that you never thought you'd yeah. see it's actually quite shocking yeah. Yeah. yeah otherwise you send up follow up emails going I also thought I could do this yeah. to the next draft <laughs> <laughs> yes I'm so sorry and they, they, can, they yeah. smell your fear which is <laughs> not good even on an email and, uh, and just on the subject of, of drafts this is uh, Sham, Shamiso uh, Michelle be who says is it better to rewrite as you go along or simply finish the first draft and then go back and rewrite it and that's 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 a really good question actually well i think i I, you can only say how you work i i have to rewrite as i go if i have a thought about something that feels like it has to shift otherwise i'm uncomfortable with the ground under me so i tend to go you know four steps forward three steps back in in but I, i know that abby for example will write a screenplay in 10 days yeah. And so, yeah, and her her turnover. So she'd do a draft. She I mean, is she, prolific. She'd, I, she'd, she'd send them out to the to yeah. like to the producer, or whoever, get, and then say, "Oh, let's do another draft. Come on, let's keep I going." I can't do that. I wish you know. I wish mm. I could. I can't. So we you know, people are different. Eric Eric Roth. I think I'm getting the right name. Guy wrote Forrest Gump. It's Eric Roth, isn't it? Yeah. Um. That uh. He starts from page one every day. Every day he starts from page one and he reads it through till he gets the point and gets further and further. And you, mm. and he writes. I mean, he wrote Benjamin Button. He wrote Forrest Gump. He writes the longest screenplays of anyone, yeah. that, any any current writer probably. And every day he has to start. You know, if he's if he's doing Forrest Gump and he's getting towards the end and he's written two hundred and fifty <laughs> pages. Do you know what I mean? Like no, he has to read through all that before he gets going on the next thing. I think it's quite impressive, really. Yeah. Just one last uh, tweet. I think we've got time for this is uh, from Jack Cuthbert, and he asks. Agents, do we need them? Uh, if so, where where do we get them? I mean, we've kind of addressed that via competitions and things like that. Something that came up when we did a podcast about comedy writing is that obviously now online, there's a there's a much more of a forum for people to put themselves on YouTube and things like that. If you want to be a scriptwriter in drama, are there similar sort of opportunities, or do you think theatre is, is is still a good way into it, Jack? Well, I work a lot with Shane Meadows, and uh, Shane is a classic case of someone that just picked up a camera and shot something. Okay, that's directing, not writing, but Shane is a writer-director in the purest form. There's not really much excuse for not doing stuff and not getting stuff made. In terms of whether you need agents, I think that you do need agents, but what you need more than agents is a really, really good reader. That should be the first thing you really pursue hard. Mm, that, um, and that, that's someone who's reading it for someone uh, you giving, trust. giving you feedback. That's exactly, it. yeah. That I did, again, doing the Royal Court Young Writers Programme, I wrote a, met a writer called Laura Wade, who's a very successful playwright now but she was at the same sort of level as I was and and she read all my stuff and at every point you're going to be you know for every person that's nice to you you're going to get like 20 who are nasty to you you know and and don't give you any time and don't give you any space and you need that one supporter who is out there to try and make your work better and is out there to try and support you through the kind of slightly brutal years when you're trying to get heard so yeah I would go after an agent hard but what I go after harder is doing things like the rain dance courses and the Royal Court Young Writers schemes and whatever else is available and finding on that course getting a lot from the teaching obviously but finding on that course someone who's at the same stage as you and is interested in the same things that you are and is a better writer than you are and can make you better as a writer I think that's fantastic advice 
And so, a, agent, agents got a bit of a bad rap sometimes in, in the lectures. I, mean, I, think, clear- I think you have to understand what their job is and not expect too much of them. Agents are not necessarily going to be your reader. If they are, you're lucky. On the whole, what your agent's there to do is to protect you from some unsolicited material and shield you from producers who are aggressive or difficult and to negotiate a deal. And that's it. Yeah. And if you don't have an expectation of best friends or of the perfect reader, then it's okay because that's all it's ever going to be, I think, really. There we are. Well, th- thanks to everyone who, who tweeted in uh, this month. You can follow us at, at BAFTA or join this discussion at Hash Screenwriting. And once again, you can hear Julian's full anecdote-packed performance on the BAFTA website. I, th- I think it was one of the funniest no, of this year. Hysteric- so the, it was uh, definitely, definitely. It was a tour de humour. That's a new phrase. Good. Yeah, tour de humour, But we're not just here to dwell on past BAFTA glories. Let's look ahead to what's coming up in November. Tim Burton, A Life in Pictures, and the annual film lecture with Pedro Almodovar are both happening soon. They're already sold out, but the videos will be on BAFTA Guru soon after they happen. The ubiquitous BAFTA Rockcliffe New Writing Forum is happening again on the 12th of November in London. Uh, That's where three new drama script extracts will be performed and subjected to critical feedback from John Madden, the director of films like Mrs. Brown, Shakespeare in Love and The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. It's a must-see for any drama screenwriters and tickets are only £7.50 for non-BAFTA members. And finally, there are a number of craft masterclasses taking place around the UK. Danny Cohen on cinematography in York on 9th of November. Composition with David Julian at Cardiff Soundtrack Film and Music Festival on the 14th of November. And Stephen Woolley is at the Bath Film Festival on the 23rd of November talking about producing. And that's all we've got time for today. Don't forget that all the events we've discussed here are available at bafta.org guru, on soundcloud.com bafta, and on iTunes. And you can get all the latest news on upcoming BAFTA events by signing up for our fortnightly newsletter on bafta.org. If you've been inspired by any of the topics described in this podcast, or if you have any feedback, please get in touch at podcast at bafta.org. And my thanks once again to Jeremy Brock, Jack Thorne and Claire Wilson. My name is still Dave Green. The producer was Matt Hill. And now stop listening to podcasts and go and actually make that thing you're always going on about. Bye. (laughs) 